Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisa Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, South Africa's ruling ANC presidency race hots up. Children in Africa set to receive the world's first malaria vaccine. And women and girls pay the heaviest price as Yemen's crisis deepens. In economics news, South Africa's finance minister meets investors in New York and in sports news, former South African cricket bowler charged with match fixing. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. An Egyptian court has sentenced 20 people to death for the killing of 13 policemen in the aftermath of the ouster nearly four years ago of Islamist President Mohamed Morsi. On the 14th of August 2013, after Morsi was overthrown by the army, security forces forcibly dispersed to pro-Morsi protest camps in the capital Cairo in an operation that killed more than 700 people. Later, a furious crowd attacked a police station in the Cairo suburb of Kadesa, where 13 policemen were killed. The death sentences issued will be submitted to the Mufti, Egypt's official interpreter of Islamic law, as his opinion is legally required but not binding. Angola's Council of the Republic has proposed a national election on the 3rd of August. The date is yet to be approved by President José Eduardo de Santos, who is expected to step down after 38 years at the helm. De Santos is Africa's second longest ruling leader. He will, however, remain president of the MPLA party. It's been argued that it's not in Africa's interest for right-wing candidate Marine Le Pen to win the French presidential election. This is the view of independent commentator and former diplomat Tom Wheeler. Le Pen will face centrist Emmanuel Macron in a runoff vote next month after the two took the top places in Sunday's first round. Macron won 23% of votes while Le Pen took 21%. Wheeler explains why a Le Pen victory would be bad for Africa. She is against immigration and refugees. If you want to immigrate to France, you, 
and she's the president, you're going to find it more difficult to be accepted in France as an immigrant. And then, of course, the same applies to refugees, that she's very much against refugees because they'll take jobs away from French people and so on. It's not in Africa's interest for her to become president. The first ever vaccine against malaria to be introduced in Ghana, Kenya and Malawi under a pilot program by the World Health Organization. The jab is to be given to children aged 5 to 17 months in the three countries beginning in mid-2018. World Health Organization's Mary Hamill elaborates. We'll use these pilots to understand better how to reach children with these four doses of this vaccine and in the real-life setting how the vaccine can really impact severe malaria and mortality. And finally, a donor conference will get underway in Geneva to raise funds for Yemen. The country is on the brink of famine after two years of armed conflict, the BBC's Emergen Folks reports. Of Yemen's 25.6 million people, almost 19 million are in urgent need of assistance, the United Nations says. Less than a third of the food and medicines Yemen needs are getting into the country. The ports are blocked. Over half the hospitals closed. The UN will today ask donor countries for $2.1 billion to fund its relief operation in Yemen. Major aid agencies also want to see a halt to arms sales to countries involved in the conflict and more focus on getting peace talks back on track. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, leading contenders for the for South Africa's ruling ANC leadership are firmly in the field, despite the ANC not yet indicating that the race has begun. The party's different factions are positioning themselves around their preferred candidates, whose messaging and campaign strategies are becoming more apparent. Debo Mugobo has more. For now, the ANC succession battle is still a two-horse race with Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa and former chairperson of the AU Commission Dr. Ngosa Sanatlamini Zuma leading the pack. And both presidential hopefuls have all accepted the party line, that of champion on radical socio-economic transformation. They have differed, however, in their focus, with Ramaphosa's campaign message seeming to emphasize the fight against corruption, recently has called for an independent probe into mounting claims of state capture. This, this issue of the state capture is, is a huge problem. And it's such a huge problem that we cannot keep, you know, sweeping it under the carpet. Because it keeps rearing its head all the time. Uh, whatever you do, you keep hearing whisperings about it. The, the best way of dealing with it is to actually have uh, it investigated uh, by a proper structure that has all the power, the authority to call people to come and account. 
On the other hand, Lamini Zuma has highlighted the provision of quality education as one of the key priorities, unsurprising given the fact that ANC Youth League is amongst the most vociferous backers. The former chairperson of the AU Commission has supported the call by FISMA's full movement for free education. Education is the quickest equalizer, but of course the road to that also goes via ensuring that education is accessible to all. We cannot deal with poverty if our people remain unskilled and unemployed. So education must have the first call in our resources. We cannot justify any child that is denied education or skills on the basis of poverty or lack of of money. No child should be denied education on the basis that they cannot pay. As the ANC's national conference edges nearer, the country is gripped in conversation by how the competition will pan out. But political analyst Stephen Friedman says the majority of South Africans are merely observers in the process. Whenever you have people competing in a party, they might have different views, and the ANC is split into factions. I mean, what we're seeing is that you're having two major figures. And of course, Zainad Lamini-Zuma is clearly the candidate of one faction. Cyril Ramaphosa is clearly the candidate of another faction. And those factions don't agree on very much. And we're seeing that in the statements that the candidates are making. But I think it's very important for South Africans to understand and remember that this is not a battle for the support of South Africans. It's a battle for the support of some South Africans, ANC delegates. So what the candidates say in public is probably not as important as what they say directly to ANC delegates. The ANC is clear that its process of selecting a leader will not be preempted, saying its blueprint for selecting the seminal eye of the needle document which insists on policies and personal qualities before names will determine the process. The party spokesperson Kusela Sangwon explains. What we are seeing uh, is really speculation. At the African National Congress, we accept that uh, members of society, members of the organization, will keenly look at the processes leading towards the 54th National Conference and will from time to time make their own views on who they think should be leaders of the ANC. We as the movement are not there yet, so it really is a moot point because up until the formal processes of the organization are open, we just view these ex- activities as speculation. The ANC will hold its elective conference in December and leadership contest will only open after its national policy conference in June. I am Tebu Mokobo in Johannesburg. Renowned South African writer and struggle icon Wali Sirote, who received an honorary doctoral degree from the University of Johannesburg yesterday, has expressed his concerns about the political climate in this country. Sirote says there are many sacrifices that the people of South Africa made to gain this freedom and he has warned the ruling ANC not to turn a blind eye on that. He says the ruling party needs to be saved. Horisani Sitole has more. Walisi Rote says during the struggle against apartheid, the ANC will be in the position to ask people to sacrifice and the people sacrificed. He says... The people are now asking in sadness for the ruling party to maintain and sustain itself. Those of us who are in the ANC know that first and foremost our service was to our people. And I think this is where in essence things went wrong. When the ANC was no longer at the service of our people. Speaking as an ANC person, I ask myself, what is it that we need to do to save the ANC and therefore save the country? Serwate says, he feel extremely honored to have been bestowed with the degree. 
He also holds other two honorary degrees from the University of KwaZulu-Natal and the Walter Sisulu University. While in exile, he obtained a master's degree from the Columbia University in the United States. Sirote ended his speech by posing a question on when will South Africa be an African country. My mind went to the issues which the students are raising. One of the issues that they raised about hashtag roads must fall will not be dropped. I hope that uh, institutions like this one will pick up this issue as a very important issue which must then transform our country to set an example as to what an African country must be and can be. University of Johannesburg Chancellor Jablon Debele says when a university confers an honorary doctorate on an individual, then the university is convinced that the person has done an outstanding work and they are proud to be associated with Sirote. In the case of uh, uh, Dr. Sirute, it's obviously his extensive oeuvre uh, in, in poetry and literature. He has, re- he has been a consistent writer uh, from the time that he began and continues to do so today and has therefore made an outstanding contribution to South African literature. And it is for that reason that the university went out of its way to say we would like to associate ourselves as an institution with such outstanding people. And that report by Horisani Sitole. It's 8.13 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz. Double five kilohertz on the 19 meter band to West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. South Africa's Chief Justice Mohueng Mohueng says the judiciary is always careful not to encroach on other arms of state. Mohueng reacted to remarks made by some politicians that the country runs the risk of being a juristocracy. He spoke to the media on the sidelines of the fourth conference of constitutional jurisdictions of Africa, which is taking place in Cape Town. Justice Mohueng also addressed perceptions that the executive was not respecting court orders. Zaline Merrington reports. The judiciary will never involve itself in matters of the executive or legislature unless the constitution allows it to do so. This is the view of Chief Justice Mukwing Mukwing following claims, especially by some politicians, that the courts were encroaching on the domain of other arms of state, namely the legislature and the executive. When confronted with a case, it remains our responsibility to decide whether that is indeed so, and we intervene when it is necessary and unavoidable to do so. In other words, when it is constitutionally permissible to do so. But we always very careful not to overstep the mark, and we are well trained to make sure that that, that doesn't happen. The Chief Justice says the judiciary will not be pressured by any political party or body to make decisions which are not in line with the law. Nobody has the capacity to pressurize the judiciary. Everybody can try, but I think our track record as the judiciary of South Africa has demonstrated beyond doubt that we have what it takes to withstand pressure regardless of where it comes from 
and happily. The constitutional arrangements uh, relating to the judiciary are such that there simply is no room for a person of integrity appointed to the judiciary of South Africa to corrupt themselves. The three-day conference of constitutional jurisdictions of Africa is aimed at strengthening ties across the continent. As the host jurisdiction, South Africa, we've gone out of our way to invite even jurisdictions like Botswana and so on that are not members of the CCJA yet. (coughs) Because you can only bring people within your sphere of influence effectively if they come closer, if, if they get exposed to what other jurisdictions are doing to remain or achieve the status of being credible jurisdictions that are truly independent. That was South Africa's Chief Justice Mukhweng Mukhweng ending that report by Zaline Merrington in Cape Town. Let's go back in time to today in 1977. The South African government for the first time allowed 20 local journalists, five correspondents of international news agencies and two official photographers to visit the prison on Robben Island where 370 men convicted under security legislation were held. That was today in history in the year 1977. <laughs> Channel Africa is bringing you a new program from Tuesday the 25th of April. Join us from 900 to 1000 hours Central African time for African Gender Ndaba, a unique program tackling issues of gender injustice, equality and transformation across our continent of Africa. You can catch the program at 900 hours Central African time on Tuesdays or at 200 hours Central African time on Wednesdays and at 300 hours on Saturdays. African Gender in Daba brought to you by Channel Africa, the African Perspective. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Centrist Emmanuel Macron took a big step toward the French presidency on Sunday by winning the first round of voting and qualifying for a May 7th runoff alongside far-right leader Marine Le Pen. Though Macron is a comparative political novice who has never held elected office, new opinion polls on Sunday had him easily winning the final clash against the 48-year-old Le Pen. Sunday's outcome is considered as a huge defeat for the two centre-right and centre-left groupings that have dominated French politics for 60 years. According to Rogers Oroch from South African-based Wits University, Macron's first-round vote lead has come as a surprise. 
I am surprised that uh, Macron even became a front-runner uh, towards the election itself. Uh, considering that the French uh, voters, if you ask them in the majority, they would say that they are rejecting uh, François Hollande. And, and the reason why Hollande didn't uh, run in the first place is because mo- most French voters are disaffected with him. Uh, paradoxically, the, the same voters who are disaffected with François Hollande are the same voters who are voting for his special advisor, third term minister who implemented most of the uh, bitter policies that they, they they are against and and which led them to reject Hollande. So the, that that I would say is, is really a, a, surpri- a surprise for me that the French people who reject the uh, the president who governed too much to the to the to the center or even to the right and yet uh, vote for the minister who implement who was at the forefront of implementing those center right uh, policies. What do you think Macron's president will mean for Africa. Macron is a relative newcomer to, to French politics. He has no major policy, uh, foreign policy experience, so to speak, especially with regards to engagements with, with the continent other than few visits here and there as a candidate. And I would say that that means that Macron is going to depend a lot on veterans of, of French African policies and, and, and French African uh, political action. Uh, we would then have to look for look towards uh, the so-called uh, Africa Bureau at the Elysee to, to be the overriding influence of uh, Macron's policies with regards to Africa. Now that means, that would mean a number of things. It could mean that uh, we would see the same the same kinds of, of policies and actions by France uh, along the continent uh, as opposed to a Marine Le Pen victory which would lead to a radical overhaul, uh, could lead to a radical overhaul of the system that has uh, existed so far which, which, which we call the, the France are free. Uh, for for one thing, Marine Le Pen was proposing to to do away with relics of of French colonial engagements in Africa, notably the the French West African currency called the uh, Franc uh, Communauté d'Afrique. And so, uh, I would say Macron would be more of, more of a, a a steady stream of the long history of French African uh, po- policies, but also. Um, being a banker and a financial uh, person, most likely we would be seeing Macron at the forefront of uh, you know economic interest, not only with former French uh, colonies, but with more or less every other African country in pursuit of a trade deal. More, much like Hollande has been doing, Hollande made trade deals a, a central element of his presidency, negotiating deals for various French companies in, in many other many of the of the industries, notably notably defense and aeronautics and, and the rest. Now Sunday's outcome is a huge defeat for the two center right and center left groupings that have dominated French politics for sixty years and also reduces the prospect of an anti establishment shock on the scale of Britain's vote last June to quit the European Union and the election of Donald Trump as US president. What do you think informed the decision of the French voters in this election, uh, uh, Rogers. It seems that uh, the French, the, the outcome of the Sunday vote uh, is like could be read as a rejection of ideology of the left, ideology of the left, and ideology of the right. But uh, I would also say that it, despite that, that, it would seem that it's also the uh, enthronement of new kinds of ideologies. Marine Le Pen, who who envisions France within a nationalist ideological frame of of France first, like. The U.S. in the case of Donald Trump, the U.S. Americans first. So that will be Marine Le Pen, but also Macron, who is very ideologically 
uh, situated within the neoliberal frame of, of uh, market, essentially market reforms, labor market reforms, tra- uh, economic reforms, liberalization in, in every possible way. So on the one hand, it's a rejection of the traditional ideological frame which has governed France for 60 60 years uh, of the left and the right, but it's also uh, a march towards a new kind of ideological politics uh, where, of course, we have to account for uh, events or actions or or processes like terrorism that inform uh, a reading or a nationalist reading of people, candidates like Marine Le Pen and the Front National. That was Rogers Oroch, French political analyst at Wits University on the line from Johannesburg in South Africa, speaking to Channel Africa's Kumbero Munjelele. Let's go back in time to today in 1986. King Mswati III became King of Swaziland when he succeeded his late father, King Sobuza II, who had died of pneumonia in 1982. That was today in history in the year 1986. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Women and girls are paying the heaviest price as Yemen's humanitarian crisis deepens, increasing their vulnerability to violation and abuse. That's the view of Anjali Sen, the UN Population Fund representative in the country, who's in Geneva ahead of a high-level pledging conference on Tuesday to try and pull Yemen back from the brink of famine. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres will chair the event on behalf of the war stricken Arab state where 19 million are in need of aid and 7 million face starvation. Mersens told May Yaqub that the lives of around 52,000 pregnant Yemeni women were under immediate threat due to complications they face giving birth. We know that uh, an estimated 18.8 million people Two-thirds of the population are in need of some kind of assistance or protection. And uh, the humanitarian situation has really worsened over the last uh, two years. And the coping mechanisms of Yemeni, especially for uh, women and girls, are uh, really stretched. And they are paying the heaviest uh, price in this uh, humanitarian crisis. There are an estimated 2.2 million women and girls of childbearing age in Yemen today. And you can imagine that due to the rising food shortages, these have also left an estimated 1.1 million pregnant women malnourished. And this is really going to threaten the lives of approximately uh, 52,000 women who are likely to develop complications during childbirth because they're already debilitated and then they are facing food shortages, they are malnourished, and this is going to lead to real complications during childbirth. Besides yes. the food shortages, tell us more about their needs. Yemen has had one of the highest rates of maternal mortality in the Arab region. Mm. So poor nutrition and the eroding health care which again mean they are giving premature or low birth weight. And this is also the conflict is has further weakened the position of women and girls. Uh, so their protection, this has led to a near erosion of their protection me- mechanisms. And they have increased vulnerability to violence and abuse. 
So uh, what we are seeing is incidents of gender-based violence have reportedly increased by more than 63%, you can imagine, over mm-hmm. the last two years. Mm-hmm. And putting uh, 2.6 million women at risk of gender-based violence. So it, the question you asked really is very specific, that gender-based violence is increasing. We have seen that increase. And there are women. Uh, we have, uh, in 2016, we have reported 10,806 reported cases of gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. And we estimate that 52,000 women are at risk of sexual violence, including rape. This is the situation of women uh, Mm -hmm. and girls in in the country. All the protection mechanisms uh, are weakening, and this is leading to the increased vulnerability to violence and abuse. Uh, What are the major uh, challenges faced by UNFPA while helping the Yemeni women? There is lack of humanitarian access to the conflict-affected areas. As you know, the whole country is in conflict. Mm -hmm. And then we also have difficulties in obtaining life-saving medical supplies into Yemen due to the air and sea uh, blockades. Uh, Then we have uh, difficulties in organizing services for reproductive health and gender-based violence in difficult conflict areas. A lot of the basic health services have been uh, damaged and uh, we also work with partners, but there is limited movement of partners and limited transportation of uh, supplies to health facilities. So these are some of the huge challenges Mm -hmm. that we are working. We are doing our best to reach out to them, uh, to the Yemeni women and girls, so that they have access to reproductive health care and they are protected from gender-based violence. We work with local partners on the ground. We are scaling up our uh, our efforts to improve their lives, enabling them to cope with and recover from the crisis. That was uh, Anjali Sen, the UN Population Fund representative in Yemen, speaking to UN Radio's May Yaqub. It's 8.29 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Let's go back in time to today in 1917. Legendary jazz singer Ella Fitzgerald was born in Newport News, Virginia. That was today in history in the year 1917. Channel Africa is bringing you a new program from Tuesday the 25th of April. Join us from 900 to 1000 hours Central African time for African Gender Ndaba, a unique program tackling issues of gender injustice, equality and transformation across our continent of Africa. You can catch the program at 900 hours Central African time on Tuesdays or at 200 hours Central African time on Wednesdays and at 300 hours on Saturdays. African Gender and Daba brought to you by Channel Africa, the African Perspective. It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headline, Zambia's main opposition party have accused the government of trying to frame it for arson as an excuse for greater political suppression. An Egyptian court has sentenced 20 people to death for the killing of 13 policemen in the aftermath of the ouster nearly four years ago of Islamist President Mohamed Morsi. And Angola's Council of the Republic has proposed the 23rd of August for a national election, a decision which now needs it's President Jose Eduardo dos Santos' approval. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. UN health experts say children in Ghana, Kenya and Malawi are set to receive the world's first malaria vaccine. According to the health, World Health Organization, around 430,000 people died of the illness in 2015, the majority of them African youngsters. The new jab will be given to children from mid-2018, as WHO Senior Technical Officer Mary Hamill explains to Daniel Johnson as the World Marks Malaria Day today. At WHO, we are very pleased to be able to announce in advance of World Malaria Day and during African Vaccination Week that the first vaccine against malaria, which has been designed to prevent illness and death in African children, will be piloted in three African countries. And those countries are Malawi, Ghana, and Kenya. We expect the first vaccines to start sometime uh, in mid-2018, and we'll use these pilots to understand better how to reach children with these four doses of this vaccine, and in the real-life setting, how the vaccine can really impact severe malaria and mortality. It's already been trialed, but you're going to be testing how effective this vaccine is, the RTS, S vaccine is, in the real world, so to speak, because, as you say, it needs four different injections, and isn't that one of the main question marks over it? I mean, how confident are you that this, this uh, new vaccine will be effective in the real world? Well, this is a big question. Can we reach the children with four doses that are outside at least some of the doses will be outside of the normal routine immunization time period. The last dose is given at two years of age, and we don't have many vaccines that are given in the second year of life, although there are some. So we're going to use this time to find out how to reach the children with these vaccines. Will there need to be additional efforts over what is usually done during a immunization delivery system or immunization campaigns in order to reach these children. And can you maybe give me a bit more detail about what this vaccine is designed to do? I mean, when we say it's designed to combat malaria, it's specifically going after the very, very virulent form of the, uh, the parasite, the plasmodium, excuse my pronunciation, falciparum? Yeah, the plasmodium falciparum, that's right. And that is the deadliest of the malaria parasites. Malaria, even now, even with the progress made over the last 15 years, malaria continues to result in over 200,000 cases of malaria per year and around 400,000 deaths. And most of these cases and most of these deaths are in African children. So this vaccine has been shown to reduce malaria episodes by about 40%. And you can imagine if we could introduce it broadly, if it turns out that it is 
a vaccine that we can uh, get four doses in, and it, it looks like it's worthwhile to give a broader recommendation, it could really have some considerable impact. Considerable impact, you mean tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives? We think that if this vaccine were fully implemented, it could reduce tens of thousands of deaths per year, which would be hundreds of thousands of lives over a number of years. And final question to you. The trialing is taking place in three African countries, Africa being the main continent where malaria affects people the most. That's right. The vast majority of malaria illness and deaths is in Africa and in African children. This vaccine was specifically designed for children in Africa, and that's the only place where it's being recommended for use in these pilot programs in these three countries at this time. That was WHO Senior Technical Officer Mary Hamill speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa and on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. Now let's go back in time to today in 2004, President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe arriving in Pretoria for the 10th anniversary of a free South Africa and the inauguration of President Thabo Mbeki is housed in a guest house after two five-star hotels refused to accommodate him. That was Today in History in the year 2004. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorla. Africa, Timely provision of accurate and comprehensive information and life skills training regarding sexual and reproductive health and rights is essential for adolescents to achieve sexual health while sexuality education is just one component of a multifaceted approach to address and ultimately improve the sexual and reproductive health of young people. It also enables them to gain knowledge and skills. A report released recently by the African Population and Health Research Center in Mombasa indicated that there is a need for sexual education to be taught in schools in Kenya. Diana Wanyonyi reports from Mombasa. The report titled Sexuality Education Policies and Their Implementation in Kenya was conducted in 2015 in three counties in Kenya, namely Nairobi, Mombasa and Homabay. The report provides a snapshot of how sexuality education policies in Kenya are translated into practice in secondary schools and what students, teachers and principals think about them. The data was collected in 78 secondary schools from teachers, principals and students in forms 2 and 3 as well as informants involved with policy and program development and implementations. Stella Sidze, a researcher from African Population and Health Research Center, elaborates more on the report study. The policies that are related to sexuality education are 
available in Kenya, especially in terms of uh, the government commitment to scale up age-appropriate comprehensive security education. But there is a need to address some gaps in terms of implementation, especially the content of life skills. The need to give more focus on uh, topics related, for example, to gender rights, prevention of unintended pregnancy, information related to contraception to kids in school. And we also found that uh, there is a huge need to strengthen the support that we give to teachers to be able to prepare them to effectively deliver the sexual education content to students in schools. In Kenya, more than a half of adolescents between the ages of 15 to 19 years old, whether married or not, have had sexual intercourse. 37% of females and 41% of males and about one-fifth are currently sexually active. The report further indicated that on exposure to sexuality education, 26% of students they interviewed, mostly between the ages of 15 to 17, have already had sex, 42% of males and 15% of females. While 86% of adolescents attended primary school, only 33% continue to the secondary school. Most students in secondary school had received sexuality education by the time they completed primary school, but the information they received at this level was very basic and it does not include information on sex. Melissa Stillman, a research associate with Goodmatch Institute, elaborates on the key findings in Mombasa and the topics they were learning in schools regarding sexual education. We defined comprehensive sexuality education as comprising five categories of topics, sexual and reproductive physiology, HIV and STI prevention, contraception and unintended pregnancy, values and interpersonal skills, and gender and sexual and reproductive rights. We found in Mombasa that about half of students were learning about at least one topic in each of these categories, but only 2% were learning about all of these topics in all of the categories. The majority of teachers told students that it's dangerous or immoral to have sex, and less than 40% taught them that they shouldn't have sex, but if they do, they should use condoms. Topics that have the largest gap between those was related to pregnancy prevention. So how to use contraceptives and where to get them. For conclusion and recommendation of the study, the researchers have urged the teachers to provide sexuality education in both primary and secondary school. Here again is Estelle Sidze, researcher from African Population and Health Research Center. In 2013, Kenyan signed a commitment to scale up comprehensive sexual education in schools. And we also have school health policy in the country that also uh, has uh, an objective of strengthening life skills and school, providing adequate school health uh, information. There is a need for stakeholders to revisit those policies and then also to ensure that um, policies are translated properly into the curriculum. Also, we need to find ways to have a more coordinated approach for sexual education from the community level, so from the parent side, because they stay with the children in the house, needs to be supported equally as to be able to make sure that adolescents have the right information to lead a healthy sexual life. That was a researcher from African Population and Research Health Center, Estelle Sidze, and I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. South Sudan has not had much to laugh about over the last three and a half years of brutal conflict, but the UN mission, UNMIS, has been making an effort to put some smiles back onto the faces of people in the war-torn country. The Comedy for Peace event in the capital, Juba, brought together hundreds of people to be entertained by the young nation's best comedians. As Daniel Dickinson found out, the laughter also came with a very serious message.
People don't get to laugh often in South Sudan these days, but on Sunday at the Nyakuron Cultural Center, it was different. This is Zico. Of course, the jokes I'm telling is uh, about our communities in, in South Sudan here. How can you find any jokes in that material? We just see our uh, societies, then we automatically, the jokes comes and we just cra- crack it. Can you give me an example of one of your jokes about the communities here? There's another area called Lologo. You know those guys, they have toilets, but the toilet has no door. Then if you are inside the toilet, if you had any voice just crossing, you need to, to let that person that there is someone inside there. You either make, <coughs> or you sing, or you just do your leg like this. Then the person, the, the person will know that there is someone inside the toilet. The cultural centre was packed with young people at the Comedy for Peace event. The idea in this country deeply divided along ethnic and political lines is for people to come together and laugh and in so doing forget their differences and hopefully eventually live in peaceful coexistence. But does this approach work? A question I put to some of the audience. It's a very good idea. By doing such a project, can really show some kind of peace in this country. Yeah, it makes difference a lot because we feel happy, feel that we have a peace in South Sudan. If we continue with the comedy and the music in South Sudan, we feel that we will go higher and higher, we'll feel in next level in South Sudan. It brings people together and people forget what pass and they love. I think comedy can do a lot. The project can be extended to countrywide. The event was put on by the UN mission in South Sudan, UNMISS. Part of its mandate is to support the peace process here. Ruben Enaju is one of the organizers. I hope that when they leave here today, they leave with the message which we are trying to spread, and that is the message of inclusivity, the message of unity, the fact that the things that unite South Sudan is larger than whatever divides them. So my message is clear. End the war, let peace reign, and give the children of South Sudan the opportunity to explore their talent to the fullest. The conflict in South Sudan is continuing. It's been three and a half years since Africa's newest nation was at peace, driving its citizens against each other. It's hoped the laughter at the cultural centre here in Juba will go some way to healing those rifts. This is Daniel Dickinson at the Nyakaron Cultural Centre in Juba. Good morning. My name is Tabisolo Hoku with an economics update. South Africa's finance minister, Malusi Kikaba, has fielded questions from investors in New York about the South African government policy as it relates to land redistribution and debates around nationalization in the country. Kikaba is on a roadshow to the U.S. trying to boost investor confidence in South Africa after recent political developments saw the country downgraded to junk status. He's told the SABC how he answered questions about the governing ANC's economic policies. Yes, those things have been raised. They've been raised uh, and, and we've been responding to them. The, the ANC prefers a mixed economy where both the public and the private sectors play an important role. The ANC 
understands and believes that the private sector is is the biggest driver for growth productivity investment and job creation and that therefore the the public sector must reinforce that role for the private sector but we also believe as the ANC that the public sector has a big role to play to redistribute the 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 fiscal to redistribute incomes and and to ensure equitable access by those who are who are disadvantaged into the economy and you 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 see that in the in the fiscal management in in how we use the fiscal how we use government's procurement spend how we invest in the in the in the infrastructure Nigerian stocks have risen by more than 2% after the central bank introduced a new policy to allow foreign investors to engage in foreign exchange trading as rates and buyers sell sets. Now, the market all-share index rose in early trade by 2.37%, lifted by Dangoti Cement, which accounts for a third of the market capitalization. A central bank circular says all people or businesses, local or foreign, who need U.S. dollars to repay loans, pay dividends, repatriate capital or settle trade-related obligations will be eligible for the new trading system. The International Monetary Fund says Zimbabwe's bond note surrogate currency will not solve its economic problems. The Southern African nation last year introduced bond notes which officially trade at par with the US dollar and are backed by a $200 million bond from the African Export and Import Bank. The IMF says limited foreign exchange inflows and a lack of monetary policy tools since Zimbabwe's adoption of the US dollar in 2009 had worsened cash shortages. European stock markets have responded positively to the result of the first round of voting in the French presidential election. Stocks soared in Paris, Frankfurt and London after the independent centrist Emmanuel Macron, who was seen as pro-business, acclaimed the most votes. The euro rose to its highest level since last November. The BBC's Andrew Walker reports. The moves in the markets reflect investors' expectation that the centrist Emmanuel Macron will defeat the nationalist Marine Le Pen in the second round of the presidential election. That would mean a leader with a pro-business agenda committed to the European Union and to its currency, the euro. Ahead of the vote, investors had concerns that a victory for Ms Le Pen could undermine the euro and perhaps lead to French government debt being converted into a recreated French national currency. They think Mr Macron's performance in the first round means that's now very unlikely. GE Power, a division of General Electric Corporation, has signed a services deal with Algerian utility Sonogas SPE, valued at more than three billion US dollars. GE says that this is the largest services agreement ever for GE Power, and one that creates hundreds of jobs in Algeria. Under the 20-year contract with the subsidiary of Sonogas, GE will train more than 1,000 workers in Algeria and create about 300 jobs through its Algerian suppliers and its own operations there. The agreement builds on GE's growing footprint in Algeria, where it has had a presence for four decades. The US dollar trades at 12.98 in South Africa. It's at 10.15 in Botswana, 9.28 in Zambia, 7.8 to the British pound, 9.2 euro, gold $1,273, platinum 958 
$5 an ounce. Brent crude, $51, double eight cents a barrel. My name is Tabiso Lohoku. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, candidates vying for various positions in the National Olympic Committee of Kenya, NOC elections set for the 5th of May have submitted their application papers. Legendary athlete Paul Taggart submitted his official application for the National Olympic Committee presidency on Friday afternoon. Taggart is among other candidates for various seats to hand in their papers at the Center for Multi-Party Democracy, the CMD offices, ahead of the elections in May. Taggart, who is facing incumbent chairman Kipchoge Keino for the top seat, says he is confident of the outcome. This is going to start now our journey to secure the seat of national olympic committee chair as a team we believe that uh, we have what it takes whatever that uh, the outcome will come will be on fifth i would really want to see uh, that uh, all the petitions come together immediately as members so that we can be able to move together maybe so that uh, we can be able to articulate uh, the challenges that we have knock an ioc have agreed on the new constitution that the World Olympic body wanted to endorse to pave way for local elections. Now, Athletics Kenya, Kenya President Jackson Tuwe is running for the second deputy president's seat. Julius Mwangi, Paul Otula, Lilian Mduda and Catherine Dereba are contesting for the executive committee membership. Dereba says she hopes for successful elections. We hope and believe that the Lord is going to see us through uh, to have a fresh knock and uh, lady to work and be able to take sports of this country to the next level. N'Golo Kante has won the Professional Footballers Association Player of the Year Award for 2016-2017 season. The 26-year-old Chelsea midfielder beat Eden Hazard, Harry Kane, Romelu Lukaku, Zlatan Ibrahimovic and Alexis Sanchez in the vote by his fellow players. Yeah, it means a lot <clears throat> to be chosen by uh, the player, to be player of the year. It means a lot for me. Uh, it means a reward for uh, this two season. I did two beautiful season with uh, one with Leicester, and uh, we are in good in good form with uh, Chelsea. And uh, to be to be choose play, player of the year, it's a great honor. In tennis news, world number one in Murray will play in this week's Barcelona Open in a bid to build match fitness and clock up much-needed clay court time ahead of next month's French Open. On Friday, Murray took the late decision to play in Spain after a surprise defeat at the hands of spinner Alberto Ramos Vinolas in the last 16 of the Monte Carlo Masters. Like, like I said, I, I came here to to try to, to play matches. That's the best way to, to adapt to a new surface is playing matches against the best players in the world. Um, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter how much you practice. Uh, it's, it's getting the matches in that, that count. So, you know, my job is to, to try and win matches this week and hopefully I can do that. Um, the reason I'm playing is because I haven't played many matches, not, not because of 
of Roland Garros. Um, but yeah, you know, obviously in a few weeks, hopefully I, I will have got a lot of matches in and, and, and be, be physically fit and, and healthy and I'll, I'll, I'll look to do well there. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, South Africa's ruling ANC presidency race hots up. Children in Africa set to receive the world's first malaria vaccine. And women and girls pay the heaviest price as Yemen's crisis deepens. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzura Magadza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa. Is in Rosa with a song title Sobula Lufandam. <laughs>